As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Chris Maranak joins us now, Director of Research at Jenny Montgomery Scott. Chris, we've been on this journey with you. We've appreciated it every step of the way. We've got some kind of resolution. I think what's interesting for us this morning is JP Morgan is positive in the pre-market. When they say things like our government invited us and others to step up and we did, are they doing us a favour or have they got something good here? Well, I think they they did both. I think they did us a favor because they were able to do this at a lower cost to the government. If you look at the bid that they uh, that they made and the gain that they're booking, it's a lesser gain than what we've seen at the other transactions, particularly comparing the SVB for Citizens deal. For Citizens had a real excellent transaction a month ago. This is a less of a gain for JPM, but I also think it represents the upside to the wealth management business that FRC had. So that's really the honey hole that uh, JP Morgan sees, and that's where I think that there's opportunity for them in the long term with the assets and the asset management clients. Chris, is this a bailout by the FDIC? Not really, uh, because the, the FDIC could have made much better terms. I think that's ultimately why PNC or other bidders were not successful. I think JPM was willing to come in at a, at a less of a bid, a less of a discount. So at the end of the day, the FDIC is seizing the assets. They are going to do a lost share, uh, similar to other smaller transactions we saw back in 2008, 9, and 10. Uh, and really, the SVB and signature transactions, too. But I think at the end of the day, it's a better transaction for the, uh, the system and the, the, uh, the DIF. Did the FDIC wait too long, Chris, to allow this crisis to continue, to allow the drip, drip, drip of good assets, of good uh, workers at this bank to leave? I think in a case of, of a week or two, yes, I would have preferred to see this resolved earlier in April. But at the end of the day, I think we got where we needed to go. Uh, I think they were trying to see if there was a private market solution, perhaps private capital, perhaps the equity markets would step up with a preferred or, or an equity raise. But that was just not in the cards for First Republic. So this was the best alternative. Chris, when you read lines like, and you mentioned it a moment ago, that JP Morgan and the FDIC have agreed to share the burden of losses, what does that actually mean in practice? Can you explain that for our audience? Sure. So as JPM now has the assets and deposits, uh, they will work through those, and particularly loans. As they collect those loans, there'll be a loss share agreement for any losses that come out, uh, and then that will be shared with the FDIC. It's very similar to what we had in 2008, 9, and 10. Uh, typically, the assets back then were much worse. Uh, these are assets that are simply marked for interest rate risk, not for credit risk. So ultimately, I think you'll see JP Morgan sit with these assets and sell them uh, and move forward. It's possible that 
um, much of what they are holding here comes back to them in the next 12 to 18 months. If interest rates change and the Fed changes policy, perhaps a quarter or two from now, that's going to have a sea change to how these assets are valued. So timing is everything. And I think that's ultimately why the bid ended up being uh, less of a discount for JP Morgan than the other banks. Do they share the upside as well then, Chris? They capture most of the upside. So I think the upside all goes to JP Morgan. That's fascinating, Bramo. Well, especially, That's fascinating. Especially because in the stories, it actually said they shared the upside as well as the downside. So it's confusing that basically JP Morgan ends up with the entirety of the upside at a time where the FDIC wants to mitigate socializing the losses and privatizing the gains. Chris, can you give us a little bit more clarity on that? What are you reading at the moment that gives you a better idea of what's going to happen there? Well, I think the loss share agreement is going to be very typical to what we saw back in the uh, transactions in 2008, 9, and 10. Uh, it was a very typical loss share arrangement where the uh, FDIC sees the bank, they cut a loss share arrangement, and then the bank collected the assets. The bank becomes the conduit for the FDIC to collect the money, to collect the loans. It's less of an issue with deposits. It's much more with the loans that were made. Remember, the loans that First Republic had were largely low-rate mortgages with low loan to value. So these are not risky loans. In fact, in many cases, these are very uh, low risk loans. They simply had interest rate risk because they were done at three and a quarter, three and a half. And the mortgage market today is closer to six. And Chris, as you know, and as we know, because we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks in a much bigger way, JP Morgan already held more than 10% of US deposits. Now that's been seen as problematic for the regulator. Are we assuming this morning that that exception has been granted already just by the very nature of this being authorized at the moment correct okay Absolutely. so can i ask the question then does this become a problem if they hold more than 10 percent of u.s deposits i assume that was a line in the sand for a reason why are we willing to go beyond it well, I think at the end of the day, if you had to take a lower um, a lower bid and therefore a bigger loss for the FDIC and for the uh, deposit insurance fund, it would have been problematic for the other banks. The other banks would have had to pay more than they already are paying. You know, the cost of, FD, uh, of FDIC insurance will go higher in the coming quarters and next year. So if you could limit the hit to the DIF, to the deposit insurance fund, that really is the best outcome for both the banks and for the system. So ultimately, this is about building confidence. And I think you build confidence, A, by having First Republic resolved, and B, by seeing that a very good operator who has strong capital, remember the fortress balance sheet that JP Morgan has always advocated, that allows them to do the transaction. I think it's going to be rare. I don't think we're going to see others like this. It, it really was the bank that was caught by the friendly fire of SVB uh, six weeks ago. Chris, it's too big to fail a good thing now. Well, not necessarily. Um, I feel that the regional banks and mid-sized community banks are in a great position to step up and serve the businesses and the households of the country. So too big to fail is not necessarily uh, the outcome that I'm looking for. I think there's many banks who are well capitalized that can step up. So to some regards, having this episode resolved is a good thing. I do think you're going to see that part of the credit solution in the country is seeing these mid-sized banks perform and perform well. Uh, I think you are correct that the credit is tightening, but I don't think it is being shut off. Hey, Chris, wonderful to get your view on things. No doubt we'll catch up again soon. Chris Maranek there of Jenny Montgomery Scott. <music> Kathy Jones with us around the table from Schwab. Kathy, wonderful to catch up with you. I can't believe it's the first time we're talking in person in something like three years because I get to talk to you so often. It feels so bizarre. I know. It's just great to be back in the studio. Yeah, wonderful yeah. to be with you. This is another bank that's gone under in the United States of America. Another last minute deal. 
spending the whole weekend negotiating this mess, and here we are. The Federal Reserve gets to decide to hike interest rates on, on Wednesday and seemingly it's going to go another 25 basis points. And I'm sure you've heard the same commentary we have, that every single bank that goes under is idiosyncratic and this isn't about what the Federal Reserve's done. In fact, we heard from John Williams, the New York Fed president, just say a couple of weeks ago that he doesn't think it's because they went from zero to five so quickly. How do you respond to that? Oh, I think it has a lot to do with how much the Fed has tightened and how rapidly they've tightened. You know, the old saying that the Fed tightens until something breaks, I think that uh, clearly they've moved at such a rapid pace that there's a, an impact on financial stability, and we're seeing it in some of the banking uh, areas. Now, it doesn't mean that credit risk, which is what they normally uh, get concerned about is a, a big issue. But I think it's hard to divorce the Fed's actions from what's happening in the banking sector. Do you think it gets worse then, given that they're going to keep on hiking, or at least we'll hike one more time this week? Yeah, we're, we're kind of hoping this is the last rate hike. Uh, but it tells you a lot about this Fed that they hiked in March when we had banking sector problems, and they look like they're going to go ahead in May when we have banking sector problems. One would think that this is probably the end of the, the rate hike cycle at this stage of the game. I wonder what kind of key man risk there is for the Federal Reserve at this point, given the fact that on Friday they did put out a report talking about what went wrong with SVB, seemed to have passed into the pa in the back view mirror. But there are ongoing questions about how accurately they are regulating some of these banks. I mean, is this potentially going to, I don't know, upend the leadership at the Fed at a certain point? Well, I would think at least we're going to get some dissenting votes uh, this week, or at least one or two. And I think that, yeah, they have to reconsider the regulatory environment that they're in as a banking uh, regulator and supervisory uh, capacity. So I would think, you know, I don't know, I don't have any particular predictions on that, but I, I do think that there may be certainly some rewritten rules and certainly a re-examination of what's been going on. We were just talking with Michael Shaul, and he was talking about how, for now, it's interest rate risk, but that eventually it could very easily become credit risk, especially as a lot of companies and individuals have uh, trouble paying back such high rates. What's your sense of just how significant that credit risk is and whether it's accurately reflected and where the market is right now. Yeah, one thing that we've seen is the, the credit spreads really haven't blown out um, in the way that you would anticipate given what's gone on in the market. So we do think that there's some risk of widening. Where I think the bank loan sector certainly is vulnerable. Private credit, we don't know what's happening there because they don't mark the market, but you have to think that there's some bad loans there that are having to be restructured. Um, and the high yield spreads have been much tighter than I would have anticipated at this stage of the game. Just very specifically, after... SVB happened, and now uh, First Republic, some people were saying they were going to come in and buy bank bonds that had gotten beaten up, because particularly for regional banks, that there was still value there. Uh, Gerard Cassidy of RBC put this out, where JP Morgan is not assume, assuming First Republic's corporate debt or preferred stock. Does this raise another risk, another layer of risk that makes that proposition perhaps less valuable than some people were arguing initially? Yeah, you've seen bondholders and uh, equity holders and preferred holders get washed out in these deals. So I think you have to be pretty selective when you're looking at the banking sector now in terms of the the, the bonds. I, you know, again, I think they're good bonds and they're they're not so good bonds, and maybe there's some opportunities there. But I do think you have to be really selective. Kathy, I've asked this question a few times, so I'm going to ask it again. And it's a little bit unfair of me, so you can take as much time to think about it if you want. The risk that Chairman Powell runs now. For months, in fact, for the last 12 months, we've been talking about the risk of him becoming Burns. 
it's the bigger risk now that he becomes trichet and hikes at the most inappropriate time. Just think that through. Where, where do you come down on that one right now? Is it Burns or Trichet? What's the big risk for him? I think it's Trichet and have all along. I thought that this Fed was moving too fast and um, ignoring some of the the lags between tightening monetary policy and what impact it has on the economy and on the financial system. And we've seen a lot of stress in the financial system in various ways, even before this. And so um, I think the risk is greater that they move too far, too fast, as they have, uh, than uh, having the Arthur Burns problem of having to tighten down the road. I don't think this is a repeat of the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's a very different economic environment. Would you go as far as saying you don't think the inflation stories are sticky as some people might say it is. Yeah, I do. Um, I think we've seen the, the good prices come all the way back down. I mean, oil prices are lower than they were pre-pandemic, so we've seen the supply side come back. And uh, when you look at, yeah, balance sheets on consumer side are good. People spend money because they have jobs. Uh, but it doesn't look to me like that's necessarily a big push on inflation. We still have aging population. We still have demographic drag. We still have a lot of savings uh, globally. So I'm not sure that we need to move as fast as they have moved. Kathy, good to see you. I can't believe it's been like three years plus, but it has been. I don't know where that time's gone. Kathy Jones, Charles Schwab, thank you very much. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us on some of these headlines, Mara Rodriguez Valladares, Managing Principal at MRV Associates. Mara, wonderful to catch up with you again. Just working through this Thank together you. over the last few weeks has been a pleasure for all of us here on the show. Can I just get to that headline from Jamie Diamond that on banking failures, this is getting near the end of it. Do you get the sense that this is anywhere near the end of it? Respectfully, I'm not sure that I agree. What is not idiosyncratic here is we're discovering that, unfortunately, a lot of these banks are not very good at interest rate risk and liquidity measurements, which really is what should be astonishing. This is the, the basics of banking. And as long as the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and of course, the Federal Reserve continue to raise rates, I'm afraid that this uh, turmoil may not be over yet. Myra, do you think that the, regula the regulators' models effectively account for interest rate risk, given that they were not able to get ahead of some of these cases? 
You know, they they actually do. And one of the things that has really come out uh, since Friday with the Federal Reserve reports, as well as the FDIC reports, is that a lot of problems, for example, with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature were actually identified by the regulators. The problem was the enforcement. And there have long been many, many requirements for banks to measure interest rate risk. The problem is, unfortunately, with every new crop of risk managers and lenders, they always think that this time is going to be different. Uh, They don't pay attention to the history that interest rates go down and they also go up. And you need to constantly be testing your asset liability measurements, all your different kinds of models for interest rates going up and down. So this idea that people have been caught by surprise, they didn't realize that interest rates could go up is really truly astounding. One thing that uh, Jamie Dimon did say was that there would probably be some reduction in lending on the heels of their acquisition of, uh, of this bank, a First Republic. What's your sense of how many smaller banks are going to get acquired? How much lending is going to get taken out of the system if there are more uh, potential incidents just like this? Yeah, I am worried about some of the smaller banks, even some of the community banks, some of the smaller regional banks. It's hard to compete with the incredible advantages that a JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citibank have. These are globally, systemically important banks. It's not just their size. It's just the diversity of the different businesses that we have. And here we are, 2023, and it it, it almost feels, uh, at least from the history books, that we're kind of back to 1895 with J.P. Morgan rescuing uh, the American government in 1913 when J.P. Morgan was rescuing banks. Uh, that kind of bank has become incredibly powerful. So there, it now has incredible exposure to operational risk. What kinds of skeletons are going to come out uh, with this acquisition of First Republic? We really need to keep a, an eye on those kinds of things. And marie joked about 30 minutes ago that Washington, D.C. was still asleep, wasn't awake yet. and hadn't seen this deal. And she messaged me a moment ago and said, it looks like people are waking up. Senator Warren on Twitter in the last, I think, 20 minutes said this, the failure of First Republic Bank shows how deregulation has made the too big to fail problem even worse. A poorly supervised bank has been snapped up by an even bigger bank. Congress needs to make major reforms to fix a broken banking system. Mara, what's broken about it? And what kind of follow through, follow up are you expecting? after this stress of the last couple of months or so? Well, one thing that is definitely broken is that after all the time that legislators and various lobbyists spent with Dodd-Frank, there's a good portion of Title I that was actually gutted, where banks the size of Silicon Valley or First Republic uh, were no longer considered systemically uh, important. That's incredibly incorrect, as we've seen this. And it has very significant repercussions to the entire financial industry, as well as to Main Street. Think of all those people who are now getting hurt and are going to be losing their jobs every time that one of these banks fails. So you need to declare these banks systemically important. That then means that they would get enhanced supervision. They would have to do a better job of measuring liquidity risk, especially uh, doing simulations of periods of stress, which is what they should have been doing uh, all along. And so there is an element of truth that there is deregulation. However, you also need to provide the examiners and all the different kinds of supervisors with resources. Uh, They don't have enough in terms of manpower, 
uh, in terms of human resources. And they also need more resources in terms of technology to be able to better detect when some of these risks are percolating with the banks. And you need to fire executives and high-level risk managers when they don't do their jobs. And they there definitely need to be clawbacks. All these executives are walking away with millions. And what about everybody else at the bank and in the surrounding community that is going to lose their job? What about firing regulators? That's right. If indeed there's a good postmortem and we discover that there are any kind of professional in the various state as well as the national regulatory entities that aren't doing their job, they need to be fired. And part of the problem is the tone at the top. Uh, the way that things were, you know, let's face it, uh, President, uh, former President Trump made terrible appointments. The tone of the top then filters down and it very much became both to offsite and onsite examiners to have hands off and to almost be friendly with the banks. That's not what we want. We want examiners, both onsite and the offsite supervisors to be empowered to not only talk about what the problems are at the banks, but then you need enforcement. All of the treasure trove of documents that was released on Friday shows that those examiners were on top of things. It was the enforcement that completely lacked, sadly. Was Chairman Powell a terrible appointment? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I think one thing that I think that he has done a very, very good job in very difficult circumstances with monetary policy. I That is where his background is, where his expertise is. His background is not in bank regulation, bank supervision, bank examination. These are interrelated, but they are different things. I think that somebody like Lyle Brainard uh, should have been appointed to head the banks earlier during the Trump administration. When I say head the banks, I mean the, the bank supervisory Apart, obviously, uh, I think that Mr. Barr has been a good appointment, but he barely got there. So there's a lot of different parts to the Federal Reserve, and Ms. Chair Powell's background is not in supervision and examination. Uh, former Chair Tarula was fantastic. Unfortunately, he never got the official designation. So there are some talented people there, but they were not put uh, to head bank supervision when they should have under the previous ad administration. And those things take time and they're all surfacing now. So there definitely has to be a serious postmortem about what needs to be done about both state yeah. as well as the national agencies. Mara, thank you. Mara Rodriguez Valladares there of MRV Associates. Going into a key week, the Fed on Wednesday, payrolls Friday, Apple earnings on Thursday. We've got to start with the banking sector in America. Laurie Calvacina joins us now, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, does that deal over the weekend put this issue to bed? Well, let's hope, John. I mean, we've been watching the KBW Bank Index performance very closely. We think it's become as important of a sentiment barometer as anything else that you can look at these days. And I think when we go back to the financial crisis, when we go back to the tech bubble, we look at things like WorldCom, Bear, Lehman, Enron. What we know is that the problem children um, in any crisis have to settle down uh, before the market can can settle down itself. Um, and I think that if you look at that index, that bank's index, it's been trying to stabilize. Um, it's remarkable the resilience 
that we've seen. We know that earnings revision trends in small cap financials, which is a good proxy for regional banks, have been absolutely smoked. Um, and that's something else that, that you know, we really need to see happen in here before I think the market can be content with the idea that the pain is out of the way. So time will tell, John, but I do like what I'm seeing in the data. SVB failed in March. The equity market rallied. First Republic was essentially going under in April. The equity market rallied. Laurie, can you make sense of that? The fact that we seem to have left behind the KBW Bank Index and the broader S&P 500 has carried on grinding higher. Well, there's another child that the market's paying attention to, not just its problem child of the regional banks, um, but its, you know, sort of oldest, you know, stellar child, the tech sector. And the earnings there, I think, are in a recovery process. Um, if you look at the rate of upward revisions, another good proxy for earnings sentiment, it got absolutely smoked last year for the TIMT space broadly. And it's actually in recovery mode this year. We're seeing things get less bad. We've even seen the tech sector briefly enter upward revision territory. And frankly, John, that is just the child that matters more to the market right now it's not it's it's just bigger in terms of its market cap representation so the structure of the S&P 500 is in such a way today and this is very different from what we've seen in the past Um, but if tech is behaving well it also pre-traded the pause essentially um, and is looking ahead to rate cuts we can debate you know whether or not that's going to actually happen Um, but but basically the recovery the improving trends and the positive interest rate dynamics for the tech sector have been enough. Well, it's not just the tech sector there, Lori. As you know, you've been tracking the earnings. And even in some of the consumer discretionary areas, you've seen consumers absorb higher prices. They have absorbed going around the world, traveling as much as they possibly can. At what point does the fact that even these bank failures that we're talking about not tighten credit enough to really do the work for the Fed, and that comes in as a potential surprise for markets this week? Well, look, I, I, I do think that the Fed is likely to go ahead and hike later this week. That's basically priced into market. I think for the Fed to not do it at this point in time would spook the markets more than helping it. Um, but I think that you have to always go back to the reasons why the Fed is doing what it's doing. And if the Fed is saying, OK, we can go ahead and hike one more time. We think this is a relatively contained implosion. We think that the economy is strong enough to go ahead and do that. That is a vote of confidence for the here and now. Now, I do agree with you that we're seeing a tighter lending environment coming up. Um, I was listening to Bloomberg earlier this morning and liked what I heard one of the analysts saying about, you know, this doesn't really seem like it's a cliff. It seems like it's something that's going to come in, you know, in terms of dribs and drabs over the over the longer term. I think we have to go back and ask, what is sort of the state of the consumer balance sheets coming into all this? And I think the resiliency that you're seeing in terms of that consumer spending speaks to the fact that so much of a mess was cleaned up during COVID from all the stimulus programs and all the time that people were forced to spend at home. And that strength is now coming in and it's an asset and a buffer for this economy and it's showing up in those consumer earnings results. Is the best way to play this in large cap companies and not necessarily the Russell 2000 that's more exposed to other banks that as Charlie Munger said over the weekend could be laden with some of these other bad loans or at least underpriced uh, loans based on where interest rates currently are? I think, you know, we go back to these crises that we saw in the past. If you go back and look at, you know, sort of the big growth stocks back in the tech bubble, it took a very, very long time for those to become a leadership area again. And you can say the same things about the banks coming out of the financial crisis. So I think it's right to have some caution there. We've moved to a neutral on the financials, and and we say that in small cap as well. They're cheap, but who the heck knows how cheap they actually are. Um, I do think outside of the financials and small cap, you can find interesting things to play on a recovery thesis. Small cap consumer discretionary 
sector looks extraordinarily cheap right now and should benefit from kind of a recovery going into 2024. The same fundamental tailwinds that we would see in the big cap names, but the large cap consumer discretionary stocks are actually extraordinarily expensive right now. So we think there's a better risk reward in those small cap consumer names. I do, though, think, Lisa, as long as markets are kind of jittery, and as long as markets are focused on, you know, kind of getting ready for Fed cuts down the road, I do think that tech is going to have some tailwinds. Now, we are watching the positioning there very, very closely. The NASDAQ futures are starting to get elevated. When that breaks, when that peaks, it's going to take down the tech stocks for a little bit. It's going to, you know, impact the broader S&P 500 as well. But for now, I think the earnings trends are good. I think the Fed trajectory in terms of where the market expects to go is good. Um, so I think you can be selective in small cap, but I do think that the tech space and big cap should do pretty well. Laurie, you know, not bearish. I just want to be upfront about that. You're really not. You've been yeah. constructive in some ways, in many ways, over the last few months. Laurie, how hard is it to convince someone to take money out of money market funds and put it in the equity market? I think that it depends on what part of the market you're talking about, the time horizon you're giving investors, and the purposes that it's supposed to achieve. So one of the things we've been talking a lot about lately is the energy sector, which has really, really nice dividend yields, balance sheets that have been cleaned up. It's been kind of an orphan sector for the last few years. It's come back over the last year or so, especially with Russia-Ukraine in the spotlight. That's a pretty easy conversation to have with investors right now, even though there are some shorter-term concerns about oil prices. Um, I do think at the end of the day, one of the things we see retail investors do is come into the S&P 500 for yield opportunities. And even though the growth sector, the growth part of the market is zigging and zagging right now in terms of, you know, just all the strength we're seeing on earnings, there's some really interesting yield opportunities if you look in other sectors. Those aren't tough conversations to have, frankly. Laurie, thanks for being with us. Laurie Cavacina there of RBC Capital Markets. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now to really give a sense of what the uh, risk reward is for a Federal Reserve, the balance of risks at a time of inflation that is coming down, but still incredibly high. Joseph Lavornia, Chief U.S. Economist at SMBC, Nico Securities. Joe, wonderful that you're joining us here on Thank set. You. I'm wondering from just a, a high level perspective, what is the impact on the economy from uh, failures of banks that have left the biggest banks in America, Even assuming... Bigger. 
the smaller ones even bigger and not going to fill in some of the lending? There are two key things, Lisa. Number one, this problem resides with the Federal Reserve. Management issues exist in banks, no question. But this Fed raised rates much more than the forward guidance suggested. They put those rates way above where the market suggested last last summer they were supposed to be based on the inversion of the yield curve. And the banking system, the lending system doesn't work when you have a higher short rate versus the longer rate. Yield curve, not just as a predictor of recession, but causes recessions. And the sad thing is the Fed is going to now regulate these smaller, medium-sized banks when it was Fed policy itself that caused this crisis. That's number one. Number two, given the tightening and lending standards we saw in January before this SVB Signature Bank First Republic situation rose, banks were already tightening lending standards, small, medium, and large banks at the fastest pace since previous recessions. So I can, ima- I can imagine that when we get the data a week from today, on Monday, May 8th at 2, it's going to show further tightening in lending standards. And that is unambiguously bad for the economy. So you just said a, a number of things that I want to dig into, and I'll get to the Feds uh, and, and sort of how quickly they raised rates in just a minute. But if you're saying that they raised rates so quickly that the banking model did not work, then what kind of uh, follow-on effect do you expect in other regional banks, even though a lot of people say they have been fortified, they have raised capital, they have addressed some of the issues. Well, that may be true. Uh, So there's two issues, really. So one is systemic, like how many other banks perhaps are are behind the banks that have had troubles? We don't know the answer to that. The Fed has backstopped these banks through these various lending programs. The issue, though, is will these banks make loans and extend credit? That, to me, is unlikely to happen. In other words, they're going to call in deposits or call in loans, try to raise deposits. Revolving lines of credit won't be extended. That's bad for growth. So whether there is another systemic issue because of, let's say, bank mismanagement, we'll call it with quotes, uh, is is sort of irrelevant in the sense that what the Fed's already done from a monetary policy transmission mechanism is they basically killed credit and money and lending creation. So you don't think that it was the issue of Randy Quarles for not necessarily uh, enforcing some of the regulatory oversight that the Fed flagged at specific banks that have run into trouble? No, I mean, that's just that's just political cover. I mean, if you looked at the bond market that through April of last year, it was the the, the, uh, middle part to longer part of the curve. Those bond market returns at that point were the worst returns you had in measured history. So the market was not, people did not expect the Fed to keep going in 75s. And it was after that first 75 when the yield curve inverted. And the Fed stupidly uh, ignored it. Okay, but then what would you say to people who point to the actual economic data that's coming in? It's been stronger than expected. Consumers keep spending. There has been ongoing credit creation. This morning, we have 10 different issuers ready to sell corporate debt, even though rates have risen so much. What would you say to people who say the economy has proven that it is resilient and has been able to withstand this and then some, and actually it hasn't driven inflation down enough? Inflation's lagging. Inflation's coming down. The, if you look at the symmetry of the CPI, the upswing and the downswing has been identical in this cycle. There are pockets of the economy that are strong. We had the same debate, Lisa, back in 08. I remember vividly, I wrote a piece on this. You look in 08, we had people debating if we'd entered recession. The economy grew over 2% in the second quarter of 2008, and what turned out to be the deepest recession since the 30s. So the fact that the data are all in alignment is normal. We had where housing's in recession, manufacturing's in recession, inflation's coming down, core CPI will be sticky, rents are a big piece, but we know the housing's weakening. What is so wrong in just waiting and seeing what happens for the spillover, if any, in the rest of the economy? If they could have done that numerous times over the past year. Well, they've gotten it wrong, though. 
they got gotten it, wrong. it totally wrong. Right. And they got the transitory concept wrong as well. And that some people would argue, including Mohammed El Arian, that that was the reason for how rapidly they rose, they raised rates. That yes, perhaps they did raise them too quickly, but that was the least worst option after not raising them for as long as they did. So what would you say to that? I mean, was the first misstep and the real misstep not raising them back in the summer yes. of 2020? Absolutely. Jay Powell channeled his inner Paul Volcker when he wanted to be reappointed. So you're absolutely right, and Mohammed's right about that. However, you don't correct one mistake by making another mistake. And I could imagine the people who have been arguing the Fed to raise rates, who have been got to get inflation down. What happens, Lisa, hypothetically, we go into recession this year, as I believe will happen, and we're in next year presidential election year. What kind of political pressure is the Fed going to take? Because it doesn't matter who's arguing. It's one side's going to be happy they're cutting or not cutting or whatever it might be. So the Fed has really put a huge bullseye on its back and it could have been prevented. And part of the problem is that the Fed, all these meetings, it's all this unanimity. There should be debate. Economists don't agree on anything except for those at the Fed. <laughs> this is something that people are expecting we'll hear perhaps more of going forward. But right now, given where we are, given how quickly they've raised rates, what is the bigger risk? If they pause at this point, is that the right course of action? Is it yes, to they cut should, they at should, a point where people yes, are concerned they, that they're going to reignite some of the, the credit creation? Inflation is easy to handle. You raise rates. The Fed should have paused a while ago. The Fed will be cutting and should be cutting. Uh, Break-even inflation, the yield curve, the dollar, commodity prices, none of these things have been suggesting for the last six or seven months there's really any sort of inflation problem. Uh, not that inflation's not needs to come down, it will. But the Fed should stop this crazy policy of, of tightening and they should continue with the balance sheet, but they should cut on the rates. That should. People are expecting the market is pricing in a 25 basis point rate hike at Wednesday's meeting. Based on that rate hiking cycle, based on what you're seeing in the fundamental economy, what do you think will be the outcome for the US economy? Recession by third quarter of this year. I mean, the thing is, if you look at the index leading indicators in the 06 period, it peaked 21 months before the economy peaked. That would put an economy peak this year in September. We're down almost 8% over the past uh, 12 months. Uh, virtually all the indicators are declining. The yield curve is still inverted. You mentioned the bank lending. That tightening is still working itself through the economy. Why in the world are you raising rates? You're actually making the problem worse because you're lifting money market rates, which is encouraging to record deposit flight. It's like, I don't understand why these people don't see it. It's kind of like, in, remember in Zoolander with uh, Will Ferrell, the you know, yes. Mugatu piano key necktie, like the Fed, you, those short rates, those bill rates are up at 5% plus. You've put them there. What are you doing? Never thought that I'd hear Zoolander uh, cited as a model for Fed policy. Joseph Lavornia of SM, SMBC Group, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg the iHeartRadio app, tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.